what we've constructed in our constitutional order and our rule of law is a container for political disagreement. That we have political disagreement and it doesn't become the kind of violence that characterizes 99.99% of human history. That we imagine that what people carefully constructed in our constitutional order over 800 years is just a norm we can take for granted. Right. That that's the baseline state that, of course, we should, you know, just tear all that up and create equity or whatever the uh, desired outcome is. And then it won't be the destruction of the dam that held everything back and that we immediately regress back to what human beings are typically like when we're not carefully constrained by the norms of civilized society. <laughs> Well, welcome everyone to Freedom Feature. My name is Barry Bussey. And with me today, I have Professor Ryan Alford, who's the uh, professor at the Bohr Alaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University. He's a bencher of the Law Society of Ontario and is also an author who's written a number of books. But in particular today, I want to pay attention to this one. And I encourage you to get a copy, Seven Absolute Rights, Recovering the Historical Foundations of Canada's Rule of Law. Professor Alfred, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Barry. It's really my pleasure. As we are going through uh, this experience right now in Canada, where we now have the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and as I was reading through your book today, looking at a number of the... uh, of the concerns that you have with respect to the rule of law in times of crisis. And I'm wondering if you could just help our listeners understand what your concerns are. And then I'd like for us to look at the current live stream example, as it were, of what's happening in Canada today. It's a great question, Barry. I'd just like to say that what we think of as rule of law is a product of crises. So every time that there's been a serious threat to the constitutional order, it's always come from one direction. It's come from the top. So people who are in power have said, I don't want to observe the existing limitations, whatever they might be, on my authority. So I'm going to act outside of my authority and find these ways of sidelining all of the restrictions. So if you that book you held up, the cover, there's a, that, that's a detail of a famous painting. And that painting is... King John, and what's in front of him is Magna Carta. So he's at a place called Runnymede. He signs a document called the Magna Carta. Uh, there's some <laughs> some historical details, a little fuzzy there. Um, he probably actually would have used a seal rather than signed it. But we're trying to imagine that. It's very hard to imagine. But this is a time when a king would say, well, I'm the king, so therefore I can have you put to death. Now, that was something that the church would not tolerate. But the question is, when someone says, I don't care about the law, how will you restrain me? A mechanism has to be created to do that. Mm. So we came up with Magna Carta. So there's a famous clause of Magna Carta, Section 29 of the Runnymede Charter, Section 39 of the Statutory Enactment, which says that we will not use violence against our subjects. We will not do things to them, seize their property, imprison them, take their life without due process of law or by law of the land. So it says, now I'm committed to using legal means. The very germ, the essence of rule of law is right there. 
is that there is something outside of your authority, something reserved to a higher authority, potentially, that you may not trespass upon. And if you do, you will be subject to being held accountable for that. And over time, in every crisis, we see, okay, well, I accept that that's the case, but I'll find some other way around this. You know, you mentioned before the interview, talking about my history. So I left legal practice to go to Oxford University to do graduate studies. And my thesis at the University of Oxford was on the court of Star Chamber. So you have complicated end runs created where they say, well, this is technically the law of the land. You know, it's being applied in this court, which we call Star Chamber. So therefore, we can cut your ears off or slit your nose or brand your face, things of that nature, often because of um, unorthodoxy in religion at that time. Right. That this was essentially a way of getting around that. The reactions to that is one of the reasons why we don't have torture within our legal order. Because when we abolished the court of Star Chamber, we took away the ability of the Privy Council sitting as the council board also to issue warrants to the Tower of London, which is where all torture was performed at the time. Despite the fact that they couldn't kill people, they said, okay, we're going to torture people. So there was a big battle over the existence of this conciliar jurisdiction in the court of Star Chamber. It was abolished, no torture. So you don't have that as a means of enforcing this outside of legal authority, just pure power. You move along a little bit further, you get the Petition of Right. You get the Habeas Corpus Act. You get the English Bill of Rights. You get the Act of Settlement. All of these close the loopholes whereby, you know, oh, well, I, I admit that I can't kill someone, so I'll torture them. I admit that I can't torture people, so I'll imprison them indefinitely. I admit that I can't do this without due process of law, so I'll use a special court. I admit that I can't use a special court, so I'll intimidate the judges. All of these rights that comprise our rule of law were created because of these crises. And what determines whether or not it endures is how we as citizenry, and particularly the legal profession, we have that special duty to uphold the rule of law, how we react in that crisis. We have to continuously receive, adapt, and carry forward that tradition of rule of law. What then determines the crisis? Is it just the king, just the power, the one that has the power? Well, this is exactly how we got that segment of the rule of law. The Stuart kings, particularly James I, mm. who came to England not knowing how the constitution was taken seriously by the legal profession in particular. He said, well, there's this terrible threat there's going to be an invasion from Spain, just like you saw under Elizabeth with the, um, the Armada. Mm. So what I need to do is I need to tax you in these, these ways that get around the requirement of parliamentary approval. And we said, well, we can't have this situation where the monarch gets to declare the emergency that allows them to expand their own powers. Because in a situation like that, they're always going to engineer such an emergency. That's one of the iron laws of history. If you go back through history, if you give people in power this opportunity to expand their powers whenever they declare an emergency, they're going to declare an emergency to expand their powers. So this is one of the most important documents of our constitutional tradition. It's called Petition of Right. And it says, you don't get to do that. You don't get to be the judge of whether or not the emergency exists. So this is the direct forerunner of why we now have something like what's going on in the Senate right now with the Emergencies Act. So the Emergencies Act is declared by the cabinet. They get to say, well, this emergency exists, which allows us to make laws of the same force and effect as parliament, mm -hmm. but without any parliamentary input. 
that, okay, well, within seven days, we're going to have a debate in Parliament, in both the House of Commons and the Senate, as to whether or not that emergency really exists. And you're going to need to justify this. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge step forward. The question is, are we going to defend this now? Are we going to say, well, this has to be meaningful? We're not going to tolerate members of parliament and senators treating this as just some sort of um, mere technical requirement. This is something that we fought and that we died for over the course of our history. And I would just say in passing, um, what this also reinforces for me is the need to take that tradition and that history very seriously. Right. Because if we don't understand that that is our history, our law, our constitution, our rule of law, that we fought and died for it, that we are members of this tradition, it doesn't matter if it was your particular ancestor, but that you have adhered yourself to this tradition, you have sworn the oath to uphold this. If you don't take that seriously, everything's just words on a page. You make mention in your book that there's not a whole lot going on in the law schools right now with respect to this history. And I, re and I have to say, uh, you know, I graduated from law school in the year of 1992, which wasn't, uh, <laughs> well, it seemed like not too long ago, but of course it is a long time now. Um, but, you know, how, I, I never had a legal history course. Um, the only history I took was one that I was interested in uh, that was an American constitutional history course that was offered, and I took that, but there wasn't a Canadian constitutional history course. Um, you know, there was a legal theory course, but nothing that really gave me uh, just what you have told me in the last couple of minutes uh, is, you know, we never had that. The people from our generation who remember the people who taught legal history, it's very revealing. So before there was a law school in Thunder Bay, many of the lawyers in the area went to University of Manitoba, to Robson Hall. And there was someone there named Deloitte Guth. And by the time that he was done at the faculty, he was of quite an advanced age. And that was true of a lot of the people who taught legal history, that they were holdovers from a much earlier age. And they were trying to pass along this torch, right, with failing hands say, you need to understand this to value what the law is. This technical or theoretical understanding doesn't provide a basis for you to really believe in the importance of it. Right. It doesn't get the job done, right? And we didn't replace these people. Um, there's another book, kind of a classic of this genre, called Who Killed Canadian History? by a professor from the University of Toronto called Jack Granitstein. And he said, well, why didn't we stop doing this? Why didn't we as a country just decide that we didn't need to transmit this sort of knowledge anymore. That instead, I mean, this is the interesting thing. Um, uh, Norman Spector was commenting on this on Twitter. If you think back even to the time of someone like Jean Chrétien, it was always about how Canada was the best nation. It was a great nation, that we had inherited this tradition and we're making it even better. Now we have a narrative about how we're despicable and how our history is just something that deserves to be subjected to damnatio memore, right? Just strike it all down, right? Erase all of the tablets. So if that's what you statutes. want to promote, yeah, yeah, statues and statues, that if you want that, then you want to eliminate these people who can who can contradict that narrative, who can say something, just, just to inject a little bit of controversy here. That John A. McDonald may have had a lot to do with the construction of the residential school system. He was also the person who convinced the Canadian public 
that great amounts of public expenditure at a time when there was very limited ability to raise money should be spent on smallpox inoculations for Canada's Indigenous people. And if it hadn't been for that, right, there would be a very different situation on the ground today. Mm-hmm. So the people who are very pro-vaccine, very anti-John A. Macdonald, well, he's someone who said, we've got to make a tremendous effort to make sure that people in the most remote parts of this country, people who are not even really citizens under the, the Indian Act, um, that they should get inoculated against smallpox. We're not going to allow them to die from epidemic disease, mm. right? And this, this history is complicated. And you need somebody with a real commitment to it to be able to tell it in an even-handed and adequate way. Mm-hmm. So we, we've superannuated those people. They don't exist anymore for the most right. part. And, and we don't even need to hear them. We, we like they have nothing to say today right they're just talking about dead white men after all mm-hmm. um it's just a, a remarkable um thing i mean just again we're having kind of an open, a free and open discussion here i often tell my students about thomas darcy mcgee mm. so mcgee had been a radical irish nationalist he had supported every form of terrorism you can imagine to secure the independence of ireland uh, but by the time he matured politically He became a staunch advocate of Canada, saying that this is a place where even the Irish Catholics can become members of the political community and get the rights and get the ability to participate politically as everyone else in Canada. Why would you throw that away? Why would you abandon that? Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I mean, for somebody who grew up in Ottawa, um, some of us know that Thomas Darcy McGee was shot dead while he was a cabinet member on Spark Street by an Irish nationalist, by someone who saw him as a collaborator and a traitor, because he was demonstrating to the Canadian public that this was indeed possible, that everybody, no matter how shunned, no matter how they can be excluded politically previously, because of this ability to hold the promises out and say, well, you need to include us or be a hypocrite, that there was so much potential there. There's a lot of comparisons you know, between someone like Thomas Darcy McGee and someone like Martin Luther King. And we shouldn't be afraid to say that. Right. And that the people who are saying, well, it's all terrible and it could never be anything other than the horror that existed before, that they're preventing a certain kind of moral discourse that's responsible for all the privileges that we all enjoy today. I mean, I have many students who are immigrants to Canada. Many of them are really forthright in saying, this is why we came here. Is to, is to seize these promises. We didn't come in here just to rubbish the place that held out such promise to us, right? And we have a very proud tradition of being able to bring those people in and make them um, full members of Canadian society. It's happened with wave after wave of group subjected to far worse forms of discrimination than exist today. Um, if you want to talk about the Irish in the 19th century, absolutely, right? That we nevertheless had the ability to do that we're not going to kick over the ladder just because we've gotten to the roof. Obviously, the importance of this for the young people in law schools today cannot be overstated, it would seem to me, uh, because that allows them, allows us, allows society to understand what is happening now. I would like to get into what's happening now, but uh, before we do, I'm wanting to uh, have our listeners just kind of understand what you have outlined in this book. And in particular, I was uh, fascinated with the, um, you know, your, your, your basic argument here 
of understanding that it's extremely important to understand the rights as they exist. I'll quote from you. So you say that in moments of crisis, we rediscover both the importance and the complexity of the rule of law, as you have outlined. But you said that when rights that were formerly thought so fundamental as to become effectively invisible are in jeopardy, the role of the constitutional historian is to recover the meaning, importance, and scope of these principles from the legal and political context of the time in which the explicit texts were written. And this, this idea, uh, it sounds like an originalist understanding of the law, and it is something that is really being poo-pooed, as it were, in the law schools today. I mean, I don't know very many originalists. There's always this idea that uh, we are to reinterpret the law because of the previous uh, problems with the history and its uh, racism, colonialism, and all the rest. But if we don't understand the principles behind it, how can we then understand how it applies today? And otherwise, otherwise, we're going to be left up to the whims of the judiciary at any given time. Well, this is precisely it. Uh, they're either the least dangerous branch or they're the most dangerous branch of government. Because you have a situation where if someone says, okay, the way that we're going to interpret the constitutional right is whether or not your exercise of it furthers the values of the charter. Hmm. Where are these charter values? They're on the text, right? Someone just then says, Peter Lowers, by the way, Justice Peter Lowers has written very um, eloquently on this subject. So it, it just it's this Rorschach text where you, you project in, well, here is the trajectory of history. And so therefore, when people were writing that, really, it was aimed in this direction. Right. This is incredibly dangerous. So what you're doing is you're positing a utopia and you're judging your society by how it's deficient by the standards of that utopia. Now, there's a history to people doing that. It's not a very pleasant history. Not at all. Right. And, and what we have to see is that our very tradition, you go back to someone like Edmund Burke, he's mm -hmm. saying what we're doing is we're doing the opposite of that. So we provide a basis for principled interpretation, principled reinterpretation even. You know, the common law is a, is a very carefully elaborated set of extensions of principles. It's, it's beautiful what the common law created. The mm -hmm. judges over the course of hundreds of years wove this beautiful seamless web, to use Maitland's phrase. But they did it on the basis of that shared understanding, that they looked back at the history and they said, we understand and we value what was going on then. That the only way we can understand everything about what we're interpreting and how we're interpreting it is by how we have a trust, that we don't do this on the basis of our own interests and our own desires to create the kind of society that we might personally envision, mm -hmm. but the one that was given to us and what is owed to us, but we owe, in fact, what is owed mm -hmm. to us, we have received, and then what we owe to generations that will follow us, right. Right? that we don't destroy the res of this trust. Because the, the, there's really only two alternatives here. I mean, if, if you say, well, originalism is bad, you're going to create a system whereby you inevitably end up not looking to the past, but to the future and injecting all of these subjective preferences, destroying the very system that makes that legitimate.
where does the legitimacy to do that come from? And you have people essentially wearing the skins of their adversaries, right? But that's not going to fool people for very long. You understand that they, they dress themselves up and they puff themselves up and they acquire the status that comes from the people that conscientiously observe that trust and well dressed that way, they exercise power for the benefit of their political allies and to the detriment of their opponents. It's incredibly disturbing. If you're looking towards a utopia, in other words, you're rejecting the past, but you're looking towards the utopia, that's what gave us things like the fascists of of uh, the middle of the 20th century. That's what gave us communism. The idea that we're going for the this utopia, this great promised land, but in doing so, you destroy society, you destroy institutions, you destroy people. Right. And it's, there's two components, right? One, as you say, both fascism and communism have this uh, desire to create this, this state in the future that will be fully authentic in various ways, that will allow for the kind of human flourishing that they think that we sadly lack today. Um, as if, you know, freedom without restraint is desirable, right? As if that's the case. Uh, but the other element, and this really bears mentioning, is that what, what it requires is a sense of rootlessness. For people to, to think about that and not to recognize the emptiness and the futility of that, they have to have no sense of who they are and where they come from. And I would just say, this is not a right-wing thesis. I usually direct people to a book called The Origins of Totalitarianism. Mm. So Hannah Arendt, so you, this is somebody who had to flee Germany as a German Jew yep. and then barely escaped the place that she fled, which was France, right? I mean, imagine... A French officer saying, leave now with nothing but the clothes on your back or you're going to die, right? And doing that, right? And coming to the United States and warning us, warning us about how fascism and communism are two sides of the same coin. You can't really see them as distinct phenomena. The, probably the best work of literature of the 20th century was by uh, a Soviet dissident who kind of had his characters say the very same thing. That book had to be smuggled out on microfilm you know, um, out of the Soviet Union. That is undeniably true. It comes from that same impulse to think about how the future is where we will live an authentic life, however you describe that, free from alienation or, you know, connected to blood and soil, whatever that is. And it's only possible, empirical conditions are the rootlessness, the fact that people are just torn up and have no connection to the community broadly and the norms of that community. And we have to ask ourselves, are we creating those conditions in our society today? Why are there so many young people who are enamored by far-right extremism, which gets a tremendous amount of attention in the press, or far-left extremism, which gets far less attention? I can't help, as I'm listening to you, uh, but to think about the current crisis we're in now, where our own prime minister has what I would suggest, and given over the last number of years, uh, that I have seen a certain almost messianic type of personality that is bringing about a new world order. And he has absolutely no problem of calling his opponents racist, misogynist, anti-science, fringe minority with unacceptable views and has no problem whatsoever bringing in a militarized police to shut them down. You know, that kind of thing. Right. The psychology is very interesting. 
because you have somebody who's engaged in all kinds of despicable behavior in his youth. Let's just say, let's be, yeah. if we're very charitable, we just point back and we say, well, I did none of those things. Right. Right. I mean, shocking, really. You see someone who does that, who nevertheless thinks that he can see the future and that he has this privileged access to a vision and that in connecting to that vision, he now is part of this elect and that this elect deserves to rule over the benighted. Right. I would just say um, one of these scholars in the same generation as Hannah Arendt was uh, a scholar named Eric Vogelin. And he wrote a lot about how Gnosticism is always the flip side of Christianity. Mm. The Christianity had um, a very important role, and this is something that Tom Holland said in Dominion, in, in kind of creating these core values of Western civilization. And we think of them, in, I would say, in kind of very basic terms. But there's even more fundamental terms than that. It's, it's a notion of humility. I may not know who God is, but I know it's not me. Mm. Right. That's what Justin Trudeau doesn't understand. Right. Because what he thinks is and this is, well, no, that's just the demiurge. I have access to transcendent truth above this figure interposed that we call God between human beings and true divinity. I have true access to this. I have gnosis. Right. And it means that I can do no wrong. Right? All it takes is to grasp this. And that all of a sudden, it's now not about man being humble and recognizing his own limitations. This is something that Arendt talked about a lot, right? Um, other people as well, I would say from that generation, Leo Strauss. The idea is that we have this tragic sense of the limitations of what it means to be a human. That all of our best intentions usually come to naught. That all the best things that we build are just so fragile and so difficult to maintain. It's so easy to destroy and so hard to build. Right. And that you abandon that notion. You have this inflated, grandiose sense of how you can be at the helm of the creation of this amazing utopia. And it seizes you. You no longer have this connection to reality. And you see this. He says things occasionally that your, your jaw just drops and you think, well, how can he be so divorced from reality? It's not just the fact that he lives in an actual bubble, you know, that he never interacts with the working person other than to give them orders, you know, right. Right. get me my orange juice or whatever. That's the sum total of that. Uh, he's not going out curling with um, people who drive the milk truck the way that I do. Um, but it's that he's, he thinks of himself as existing on another plane. Mm -hmm. And they, they go to that place you know, Davos, let's just use the example. Actually, by the way, I have to say this. I'm going to be a huge snob. It's actually pronounced Davos. Um, <laughs> the people the people who go there, they don't, even, they, don't, they don't know anything about the place. It's a real place. But to them, it's not, right? It's like effectively rising up to Mount Olympus. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating place. It's where Thomas Mann went to a sanitarium to write uh, the Magic Mountain. But they've turned it into, they enter into the Magic Mountain. Right. They go to this place where they're divorced from all of the constraints and they just talk about the possibilities and they become intoxicated with all of that. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> they, they have no sense about how they're building castles in the air. And that I mean, when you talk about Justin Trudeau doing things like this, they're so insanely dangerous. What leaps into mind is you, you, you ha your house is cold. So you smash up your furniture and you set it on fire. Mm -hmm. And now your house is on fire and you're warming your hands by it. You're like, oh, well, we've solved the problem. I mean, all the people that came before you 
that could have told you how you address these problems productively. This is the wood stove. Put it inside the wood stove. Here's the kindling. You just well, you don't need any of that because you've received this revelation. It's even above the revelation that would make you, you know, prostrate yourself before God, but rather one that raises you up to that status of gnosis, right? It, whether or not people understand what they're doing or not, it's inherent in us that we have this ability. It's a constant temptation, like St. Anthony in the desert, that right. we're going to have this come to us, right? Mm-hmm. And that, again, the only way to inoculate yourself against it is to understand that there's nothing new. James I thought that he could recreate English society. He had um, Francis Bacon, as his attorney general, draw up whole new civil codes. The plan was to immediately have a union of Scotland and England and use that as an opportunity to create civil law and to displace all of England's common law, right? I mean, they had great plans. Um, They came to nothing, but not before a civil war would cause incredible bloodshed and incredible religious strife on all of those things. But I often tell my students this story. So if you go to London and you visit the only surviving part of the Palace of Westminster, it's called the Banqueting House. So you go into the Banqueting House, there's an enormous painting painted by Rubens on the ceiling of the hall of the Banqueting House. And that painting is the apotheosis of James I. So it's from the perspective of someone looking upwards. It's James rising up into heaven like being bodily assumed into heaven and receiving a golden crown from the almighty, you know, as he does so. Right. Right. So his son who was raised in those conditions, right. Right. Mm -hmm. When he was about to be executed after he was tried and found guilty of violating his coronation oath, they took him into that room in the banqueting house. And then he stepped out through a window on second floor, what we would call the second floor onto a scaffold where they bent him over and they cut his head off. Right. He walked out of that room where his father's apotheosis is, was painted by Rubens to a place where he was about to have his head cut off. Because um, this a bit later, the French would have an aphorism for this. The revolution, like Saturn, consumes its children. Right. So those who make revolution should be a lot more careful. One of Robespierre's henchmen was sent to the guillotine and he said... Um, something along the lines that uh, my only regret is I haven't lasted another two weeks to see Robespierre being brought to the guillotine. I think that was uh, Danton, but yes, um, it's exactly what happens. It's if you don't have this system that what we've constructed in our constitutional order and our rule of law is a container for political disagreement, that we have political disagreement and it doesn't become the kind of violence that characterizes 99.99% of human history. That we imagine that what people carefully constructed in our constitutional order over 800 years is just a norm we can take for granted. Now that's the baseline state that, of course we should just tear all that up and create equity or whatever the uh, desired outcome is. And then it won't be the destruction of the dam that held everything back. And that we immediately regress back to what human beings are typically like when we're not carefully constrained by the norms of civilized society. Yeah, I mean, so well put. For all of you who are out there watching, uh, you know what? I encourage you to just rewind what you've just heard to hear it again, because it seems to me that this is where we're at right now. The experience of Canada going into an Emergencies Act 
because someone is protesting and is speaking language that you do not like, and that somehow rises to a national emergency, is like what the truckers did, it seems to me, has punctured a hole right on through this whole narrative of the utopia that was seen to be so unacceptable uh, to the to our ruling class, it seems to me. Well, that's why it's so dangerous. You yeah. have somebody who's committed to this utopian vision, and all of a sudden, when you reveal to them how fragile it is and how it's based on a very limited vision, the response is rage. It's not anger, right? I mean, people have yeah. anger when you know something opposes them and they're, they're frustrated or something like this. This is rage. You see the inability to, to accept the humanity of people. I mean, for those who don't speak French, they might not know how bad um, Justin Trudeau's comments have been, right? That he says, you know, these are people with um, um, fringe minority views that are not acceptable within Canadian society. They're frequently misogynistic, Islamophobic, transphobic, um, and anti-science. So there, that's kind of like the, the utopian vision there. And then he says, and this is in French, and then the question is, whether or not these people should be tolerated. Now, I just want to make a legal point very briefly. When I teach the most important case involving what's called the hate speech exception to freedom of speech under the charter, so what caught? Marshall Rothstein wrote a judgment, and many people said this has gone really too far because it allows for the prosecution of people for their speech. Mm -hmm. But at the very least, he tried to cabin it. And the way that he cabined it was saying it's not about dignitary harm. If it was dignitary harm, for instance, the Ward case would have come out the other way. This is where a comedian was brought to Court of Canada for a comedy routine that you know injured the feelings of a um, a young teenager. Uh, but Rothstein says it's not about dignitary harm; it's about vilification. Mm -hmm. That's where you cross the line because now what you're doing is you're using speech in a way that makes it impossible for the other person to respond. Because now when that person speaks, this is, I'll use Rwanda as an example, right? People have been listening to Radio Television de Mille Collines. They've been hearing these people described as cockroaches, cockroaches, constantly, right. right? Right. When the person speaks and says, but I know you, I'm your neighbor. The person says, all I hear is the squeaking of cockroaches, Yeah. right? Yeah. Or uh, the, 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 the Nazi looks at the Jew having seen the eternal Jew and he says, you're a rat, you're a carrier of typhus. That by the way, People should pay close attention to that yes. dimension as well, right? Yes. The idea of someone as a carrier or a vector of disease was always associated with vilification. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what Justin Trudeau did. I mean, by the standards, the incredibly narrow standards by which we define hate speech, that might actually qualify. Because it wasn't just saying, I disapprove of you. I think what you're doing is morally repulsive. All those things are charter protected. You can say right. all of those things. Right. I mean, you, you, you might have to vindicate yourself before a human rights tribunal in an in expensive and, uh, and, and really uh, vexatious fashion. But um, nevertheless, that is where the line is. And he crossed it. What encourages people to do that? It's that this vision that they promote is, is torn asunder. That these people, these Canadians, that I think most people can recognize as just the bedrock of, of the community. People who do the difficult jobs that other people don't want to do. They get up early in the morning and drive long hours and, and do it you know, away from their families for weeks at a time. That they're just saying, and this is, again, I have to 
correct people all the time on this. It's not an anti-vaccine protest. It's an anti-mandate protest. That's right. The majority of them being vaccinated are saying, we do not want the government to have the power to say you do not get to enjoy these civil rights unless you comply with this diktat. Something which was formerly considered essential to bodily autonomy. I mean, you know, it's like the rules get made in a way that what was totally normal the day before yesterday is now completely unacceptable. Right. That someone, again, we have no memory, someone would have said the day before yesterday, you know, you can't force someone to have life-saving treatment. You know, for whatever reason, they say, I'm not going to do that. There were medical journals where people invoke the Nuremberg principles and the International Covenant Civil and Political Rights to talk about how people were being held in quarantine because they have drug-resistant tuberculosis for rather short periods. And that was taken very, very seriously as a potential infringement of very fundamental rights. And now just a complete reversal. People complain against this and they're just voicing views that seem to resonate with people. That people were standing up on those overpasses, waving the Canadian flag, not as a symbol of shame, but a symbol of pride. They realized that they had been living in this bubble and that the people that they depend upon for everything do not believe the lies. Mm. That's completely unacceptable. Right, right. What do you do in that situation? You just you, you immediately go from zero to 11. <laughs> you go from no enforcement whatsoever to, my goodness, the Emergencies Act. Just on this topic, David Schneiderman wrote something, um, I think, yesterday on the Globe about the drafting of the Emergencies Act. Mm-hmm. that the reason why it was drafted with such high thresholds for application was because we had seen how the War Measures Act was misused. There was a commission report called the McDonald Commission, a report of certain activities of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Mm-hmm. And in particular, how in this period after the War Measures Act, the RCMP constantly tried to associate the FLQ with, um, let's say, the Parti Québécois. That there were people with the view that the Canadian state didn't like, which is that Quebec should be independent, right? Mm-hmm. And that they were pursuing it resolutely by nonviolent means. Randy Levesque was there in Montreal in 1970. He was thought, oh, this is going to be the death of us. This is going to be the ruin of Quebec independence. Because now we're tarred by association with these maniacs, right, um, who fled to Cuba. The, the RCMP then said, this is the winning strategy is to constantly associate the broad movement that we don't like with these ideologically motivated violent extremists. That's the language that they use now. If you you run with this and you say, well, that provides the basis for suppressing the views that provide succor to this broader movement, um, you can only do that credibly if you have something positive to refer to. So when Pierre Trudeau was doing that, he could point to Canada as a success. And say, look at what we have and what they're trying to destroy. No, rightly or wrongly, right? Mm-hmm. He's saying, here is the positive vision. What is the positive vision that Trudeau Jr. can point to? Because if these people are, in fact, violent revolutionaries committed to the overthrow of the Canadian state, that's the state that you just described as currently committing genocide, right? Mm-hmm. So when Trudeau is saying Canada is a genocidal state, that the national flag should be a symbol of nothing other than prejudice, et cetera, that we're going to fly it at half-mast in an unprecedented fashion for months and months because of this enduring shame that we should all be reflecting upon constantly, right? Right. By what right does he criticize 
The truckers. Well, there's only one answer. By virtue of the utopia that he intends to create. It's not by virtue of a positive vision of what Canada is now. Because he doesn't have one at all. And that's why I think ultimately this fails. Because unless he can convince people that this is year zero and we should commit ourselves to a complete um, radical reconceptualization of everything, um, including gender norms, including everything that we think is the most solid thing imaginable, he's got nothing else to appeal to. But the truckers do, you see. They have the Canadian flag. They have what, what we all thought Canada was until the day before yesterday. The media, the state media, CBC, Canada's Pravda, has said that the flag put on the back of a pickup truck is the absolute sign of the far right, the white supremacists. Amazing. I mean, we're sending soldiers to Ukraine now wearing that flag. Right. It's just, it's amazing. I mean, people don't understand that it creates what the left or postmodernists would call a performative contradiction. That you're destroying the very capability you have to make the statement you wish to articulate. It's like these people are despicable. They uh, want to destroy the country, the, the genocidal colonial settler state. Is, is that the, the, because that's what you say, right? So yeah. isn't this positive? It's always just falling into these abject contradictions. So again, the purpose of an ideology at its base is to prevent people from recognizing these as contradictions. I mean, I hate to say this, it's a bit of a cliche, but Orwell did not write in 1984 to be an instruction manual, right? Right. It was meant to be a cautionary tale. Yes. And the cautionary tale was how Newspeak, the ideology, prevents people from recognizing the contradictions. So right. when you see CBC just using this very, what they call in French, la langue du bois, this block-like set of just mobilization of jargon, right, that conveys the message that these are the political um, white hat wearers versus the political black hat wearers as is required in a given moment, that it actually doesn't amount to an argument. It never does. It's just somehow what, what, what Orwell called um, duck speak in 1984. Just so people understand this, there is no good argument that there is a constitutional justification for the Emergencies Act. So it's, it's technical. I mean, it requires you to understand quite a lot about how the Canadian Constitution operates. But I would just say this. Every civil libertarian organization from across the political spectrum, including the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, that have been associated with some pretty odd things. You take them on one end of the spectrum and you take it all the way to the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I know some people there, very good people. But just all the way across that spectrum, let's say um, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Canadian Constitutional Foundation, kind of on the center line, one side or the other. There's no disagreement on this point. They all agree that the there is a, a no jurisdictional basis for the invocation of the Emergencies Act. This is so fundamental that if this is true, and this is the subject of an urgent application in federal court, it's also the subject of a court action being brought by the province of Alberta, right, which has no standing problem. So this is going to proceed quite expeditiously. Everything under the Emergencies Effect, uh, Act is of no force and effect. It's mm-hmm. a nullity. All of these. Inc- so. I described this as a layer cake of unconstitutionality in a recent interview. So it's not just that these unprecedented and charter infringing measures are unconstitutional. It's that they couldn't have been constitutional in the first place. Right. There's no, they're of no force and effect because of the jurisdictional defect 
that comes from the fact that the federal government doesn't have power to do any of this under the 1867 Act. This isn't the charm. This is the Constitution Act 1867 in this division of powers. Mm -hmm. There's no basis for any of this. And we're so far from there being a basis. So again, they wrote the Emergencies Act. They raised these thresholds to say, it's not good enough that you say, these people who are spreading this idea have some sort of connection with these other people who are very, very bad people there, people who would overthrow the government of Canada. No, you do not get to invoke the Emergencies Act on this basis. In, in every demonstration that a leftist has gone to in their life, anybody who's on the left at all politically, if they've gone to a demonstration, there have been members of fringe communist groups there, whether flying flags or not, right? Selling newspapers, uh, doing what they do. If you ask one of those people, do you believe in the overthrow of the Canadian constitutional order? If they're truthful, they have to say yes. And, you know, most of them do. They would say, yes, we seek the overthrow of the Canadian constitutional state. Well, you're there to protest with them. Okay? And that you, you share some views. You have some views in common because, you know, they may also like um, uh, Beethoven and drink water. So there's some basis for comparison there. Um, you are ideologically late to ideologically motivated violent extremists with a, an anti-government ideology. So this is exactly what the Emergencies Act was crafted to prevent as a justification, because right. apprehended insurrection at the time of the War Measures Act could be misused. So again, we, we ratcheted this up several degrees, but for people with such a tenuous connection to the truth, that's never going to be an obstacle. Mm. That's the problem, is that we're using measures that seem to depend upon good faith, belief in the rule of law. And when somebody is making these arguments like the way the prime minister does, in the same way that you couldn't expect a five-year-old to comply with the complexities of the tax code, you've got the same problem with the prime minister of Canada. He just doesn't understand the fundamentals of the limits of his own power. But just, I mean, just to take it back to the question you had or the point you made about the book, this underlying all of this is this notion of constitutionalism. Right. That everyone has always said throughout history, my powers come from necessity. If it needs to be done and I'm in this seat, I am empowered to do it. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely what the rule of law was developed to oppose. Because the, the other notion is all of your powers derive from the Constitution. If you don't have power to do it under the Constitution, you don't have power to do it, period. So just with respect to non-derivable rights, which you mentioned, think about how this worked at Nuremberg. The Class A war criminals, they had an argument. It was that they followed orders. That's what we normally think. Right. But they actually had a more sophisticated argument. They said everything we did was legal under German law. That's true. Because if you watch a movie called Conspiracy, which I highly recommend, it's a depiction of a conference called the Wannsee Conference which was chaired by Richard Heydrich. Mm. And at that conference, they brought all these officials together, including the Ministry of Justice. And at that conference, the representatives of the Ministry of Justice were absolutely punctilious about the requirement that German law be amended to make the final solution, that is the genocide of the Jewish population in Eastern Europe, to be legal under German domestic law. Mm. So that when those Class A war criminals said that, they were speaking the truth. And then they had another argument. They said, you also declared total war against us. You said you don't merely seek to defeat Germany militarily. 
but you will accept nothing other than the complete destruction of the Third Reich at the end of its existence. Right. That the, the legal existence of Germany as it existed ended with the unconditional surrender. We didn't even really accept that as a surrender. You know, we, did, we, we didn't accept that the surrender had any legal consequences when um, uh, Great Admiral Dönitz signed whatever document was put in front of him. So they said, well, that's what you intended. You made that clear. What would that not justify? So we're being charged in this, in this particular trial. It was the use of slave labor to build what was called the Atlantic Wall, mm. that slave laborers were used by organization pods to build you know, large concrete fortifications. And we said... When we say we, I mean, just civilized humanity said, we do not accept that argument. There are certain things which are part of the common heritage of humanity that include these rights. You may never violate them, no matter how serious the emergency, including the impending destruction of your state. Right. So Robert Jackson, the way that he, the bumper sticker that he uses yes, this is, yes. a country is not a rock. Mm. Okay? So if you're trying to defend its territorial integrity or its safety or whatever, the, the, whatever it is, it's not worth defending if you're willing to use that means. That's the basis for saying that these rights are non-derogable in international law. It's also the argument why Nuremberg was not just victor's justice. It's right. that we really had a basis to say that this was justice, that there are no circumstances that could possibly justify this, because if you engage in them, there's nothing worth defending. One of the common themes within the current administration of the Trudeau government is the idea that I'm in power and I get to choose when there's a emergency, I get to choose what happens to people who disagree with me. Like power is the ultimate justification and there is none of this recognition. As you say, I don't think he even understands the complexity of the non-derogable right that he so egregiously offended over the last week. At bottom, it's a question of do you see yourself as a servant of the law or the master of the law? Yeah. So um, a, a very common aphorism used is sovereign is he who decides the state of exception. For the state of exception, the notion that this is martial law, we'll flip the switch, this is now you know, no longer rule of law state. The person who said that was Carl Schmidt. I mean, he was um, a high official of the Third Reich. Right, yes. Um, and the fact that he's cited, including by a prominent post-Marxist like Chantal Mouffe, as a deep penetrating thinker who revealed something really true about the constitutional order, it really reveals something about the way they view law and power. Mm -hmm. They don't really believe that law is anything other than a fiction. All that matters is you put the right person in the chair, right? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Vladimir Lenin was famous for saying, there's really only one question that determines legality, right? It's a question, which in Russian means who and whom, mm -hmm. who being the subject and whom being the object, right? That is the only question you need to ask. And we need to reorient people back to this carefully elaborated structure that prevents things from degenerating to that state because you're trying desperately to avoid a collapse back into violence. This is exactly what creates the conditions for its exercise, whether it's state violence or the violence from the people being subjected to it.
and the veneer is exceptionally thin. It's stronger here than anywhere else. We have what's called a very high trust society. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the fact that our society is very high in trust means that we can be taken advantage of by people who just superficially adopt these norms, but actually secretly believe that it's merely a matter of having the right people with the right views in the right place. I was speaking with a friend of mine recently who went through the Romanian um, revolution in 1989. He said to me, Barry, what is so scary about the situation here in Canada today from when I was going through 1989 is that in 1989, we didn't believe the government. We didn't believe our teachers. The teachers didn't even believe the government. But in Canada right now, the people of Canada believe the prime minister. And that's what makes it even worse for me, he told me. So because he was able to understand and see the fact that the current holder of power in Canada, Prime Minister Trudeau, is doing the very thing as you, as we have discussed, the whole ideological uh, position for the utopia and all the rest, is that because Canadians have been so trusting, we are the peace, order, and good government people, that we believe that he is, what he is saying is true. And it reminds me of the statement of Catherine McKenna when she said down in the bar in St. John's, Newfoundland, that we have learned that if we repeat it, if we say our talking point louder and keep saying it, the people will accept it as true. And that seems to be the situation that we face. And so therefore in Canada, it's very, very dangerous. And I I think it's why when he's made these wedge issues that we have so many people use such violent language against Trudeau's version of the cockroaches, the unvaccinated. And that to me puts us in a very, very dangerous situation. Now, I agree with you, but let me give you um, some cause for optimism. Okay, and I, I love say, optimism, and we need optimism. <laughs> the, the young kids call this taking the white pill. Yeah. Um, so uh, here I would say this. Um, we are a very high-trust society. Um, it causes people to be shocked when the veil finally falls. Right. Because the, the, the problem is, we, we kind of explain things away because we just, it just, it's cognitive dissonance. Well, that can't possibly be right. I mean, I know that things can't be this way. Right. When Justin Trudeau said he admired China's basic dictatorship because of their ability to get things done, that was all you needed to know right mm. there. Right. But people gave him the benefit of the doubt and they said, well, I'm, I'm sure what he meant was something else. No, just take that at face value as he intended it. Because he didn't understand that people would hear that and say, that's horrible that you would think that, right? right? Because this is actually a fairly commonplace view among a certain sort of elite class of people that sees China as society where the smart people get to tell the dumb people what to do and when to do it, right? right. But when he said that, people just explained it away. Well, now, I mean, what people tune into more is the rage. Right. When they see someone kind of just kind of just kind of becoming detached in the way that he did. And we haven't seen really much of that until now. 
He was always very composed. So the way he would engage in things that bordered on vilification, it didn't have this sort of antic quality to it. Mm-hmm. Because again, I mean, well, I mean, they chose the right guy. You know, I mean, he taught drama after all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he was pretty good at, you know, taking his own uh, advice and kind of never seeming out of control or just kind of out of touch with reality when he said it. Well, now, I mean, he's crossed over certain lines. And again, um, you have to see it with your own eyes. This is the problem of a high trust society. But conversely, I think that when people are finally disabused of that notion, it's very hard to bring them back, right? Right. It's very hard to say, okay, well, we're going to trust you ever again. And they shouldn't. This is the situation that we're in now, is that we should never trust what they say. Right now in the Senate of Canada, uh, you've had people told, well, we're going to have a committee to oversee the way the Emergencies Act is being uh, put into place right. and all of its regulations being used to freeze world bank accounts, all these things. So we'll give you access to some of this. You won't have any, uh, you'll be sworn to secrecy. So you'll have to take an oath that you won't reveal anything, even in Parliament. And, but by the way, we're not going to show you any of the top secret information. You just have to believe that the top, top secret information, as we describe it to you, <laughs> exists, right? I mean, yeah. how many times are people going to fall for this? Right. You know, um, I, 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 I'm not my first rodeo. I talked about the war on terror, as I said in my first book and what have you. We have received reports from foreign allies that Iraq has been attempting to obtain large quantities of yellow cake uranium from Niger, you know. We don't want the um, the smoking gun to come in the form of a mushroom cloud. Um, the media ate that up. Yeah. They ran with it. Yeah. And then when it was revealed that Iraq never had a single indication of possessing or even having a program to produce weapons of mass destruction, they just changed the subject, mm-hmm. right? But <laughs> nevertheless, there are just many, many people who said, oh, now I don't trust the New York Times, right? And rightly so. They, we were coasting on a reputation of not editorializing, of merely giving things, things to the straight. People cannot imagine the ideological bias of the CBC. They actually just can't fathom it. Right. And I spoke to a CBC, former CBC journalist named Tara Henley, who ha- now has a substack, as right. a lot of journalists do. And when she, she left the CBC because she couldn't believe the way they were doing business. She couldn't believe the degree of ideological penetration. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. They can't imagine a news organization. I hear this internally from people at these organizations that says that may be true, but we can't say it because it will give people the wrong impression. Right. That is what's called fixing the facts around their narrative, the way that we used to fix the facts around the policy. Right. I mean, these are all kind of euphemisms that were used. Right. The, the minister may have been economical with the actuality. Right. We don't say that someone lies. It's unparliamentary language. But th- this is the name of the game at CBC. We cannot let this fact come out because people would get the wrong ideas about reality. They are now in this position based on the utopia of saying this is what people should see and shouldn't see. Now, again, I said there'll be good news. The good news is the market share of CBC is incredibly small, but unfortunately, it captures a certain segment of the Canadian population. So just this is a a factoid that I thought was quite interesting. I think Ipsos did a poll and they asked people, what percentage do you think of the Canadian population was working from home during the pandemic? Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) 
<laughs> when you break it down by class, essentially by income level, which is effectively class to some degree, um, at the top level, people thought that 60% of the Canadian population from work, was working from home during the pandemic. Right. The actual figure is around 15%. Wow. 85% of the public, it is a complete non-starter. The clerk at shoppers, right? Yeah. The uh, truck drivers, all these Like, it's, it's this joke that the people in power, they think that food comes from the grocery store. That's right. Yeah. Right? I mean, but they were so out of touch that they actually thought that this was possible. And how would that even work? Well, you know, they're not getting any window on this from CBC, right? Well, fortunately, the CBC's market share is tiny. Unfortunately, it's the people at the very apex of the political structure in Canada. Um, but reality crashes in on them. Yeah. That was what the trucker protest was. And that's why it was so intolerable for the most part. It was that cognitive dissonance is painful. Mm. When you have a worldview and it tells you that you are moral and that you are uh, entitled to make good decisions and that you are smart and that you, are, you deserve all the things that you've had. And then all of a sudden, the veil is torn away from this. It is far easier to reject the reality than it is to incorporate it. And the normal response to that kind of exposure is rage. Right. So whenever you see the people in Ottawa raging against the truckers, it's really a testament to the fact that their reality is under siege, right? Not that they were prevented from moving about. I was up there for three days uh, throughout the uh, three weeks. And... Um... I, I was amazed of how little space the truckers actually had. I mean, it was all in front of the parliament buildings. And yes, there were some along the side streets. But basically, you could, I, 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 um, as I was going through, walking through uh, Ottawa, I, I stayed at a place, a friend of mine um, has a place about three kilometers away from the downtown. And as I was walking in, I'm like, okay, so where's, Where's all of the traffic? Where's all, you know, everything was wide open. I mean, um, you know, and, and it was like, you know, this great big occupation. And I'm like, you call that an occupation? I mean, it just it was incredible to me. And, and consequently, was, when the police fenced off 200 checkpoints yes. in downtown Ottawa, that you can't go to your house without a recognized exception. And those checkpoints are manned by armed police exercising emergency powers that come from a jurisdiction that can't legally operate otherwise in that area. You don't call that an occupation, right? <laughs> and, and a huge swath. Like I, I looked at the red zone the other day, uh, mm. maybe it was even this morning on the map, and I was like, wow. I mean, that has to be a thousand percent increase of the footprint of what the truckers had, yeah. and probably even more Absolutely. than that. They use this phrase called taking space, right? This is frequently yep. used in kind of left-wing discourse. Holding space, taking space, unapologetically using space, things of this nature. It's all very psychological. I mean, a big part of this is the people who are in that class don't do anything actually productive or useful. Mm. So uh, there's a guy named David Graeber. He passed away. He was a, a really penetrating anthropologist. And he wrote a book, oh, please excuse me, the yep. book was called Bullshit Jobs. Okay. And the problem is most people in that class, their job is to some degree bullshit, which is to say it doesn't actually produce anything of tangible value. At best, you're producing some sort of cumulative effect from shuffling papers from one side of your desk to the other side of your desk. Right. right? And so you become attuned entirely to the psychological. 
to the world of ideas to, you know, this, these very complicated, almost etoliated arguments about how something is actually fascism if, you know, it means that working class people get to say something in you know, the course of a protest. Like you have to have a lot of headspace to do that, right? Yeah. But they're used to it. All they do is kind of work with ideas, right? And they justify themselves as the most moral people because of their understanding of these almost Byzantine codes of, of behavior and, you know, um, the, the right words that create goodness. So all of a sudden, their headspace is under attack, mm -hmm. right? That what they think is just stable and, and, and you know, not questionable. The notion that mandates were something that people might have legitimate political opinion about was a point that they had refused to concede for years. And again, that's something you could have said the day before yesterday. Right. But all of a sudden, this is now expert opinion, experts say, that's the phrase that, you know, yeah. it's almost like, um, you know, Reagan's invocation of the scariest words in the English language <laughs> from the government. We're here to help. Uh, yeah. Now it's experts say, it's just, what does that mean, experts say? It means you're not allowed to disagree. That's right. Right? Oh, you, you're saying you had COVID, and so you'd rather not have a vaccine that doesn't protect you as well from your previous infection with, I mean, just think about this for a moment. The notion that somebody would be inoculated against a disease they already had was not normal, like within the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. there's a chickenpox vaccine. I was not rushing out to get chickenpox vaccine because I had chickenpox, right? I mean, I might get the shingles vaccine, which is actually different. Like you need a different vaccine to prevent that. But I'm not rushing out to get chickenpox vaccine. So these working class people, many of whom got COVID in 2020 from, you know, doing you know, the service that we all saluted them for, right. they said, well, I don't understand this. And right. the response was shut up, bigot. Yeah. You know, and when they say, oh, no, no, that's not acceptable. We're not taking that anymore. That was questioning the very raison d'etre of this tranche of people, right. the kind who are the most likely to exhibit that rage, you know, right. in that situation. And this is the, the ludicrousness of all this. One of the frequent charges against the truckers is that they yelled at people who were wearing masks <laughs> outside, right? And I'm sure, I mean, I'm trying to imagine this. These people who have had no contact with a working class person other than, you know, the very um, uh, obedient waiter um, yeah. slash maid slash whomever that they hear a working class person and this person's like, hey, why are you wearing the mask? Hey, you're outside. Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing that? You know? Yeah. And, and oh, my God, you know, <laughs> someone's saying. Yeah, they're, they're harassing. And, and but it is harassment because what it is for them is a challenge to their unchallenged claim to be right about everything mm. and that anybody who disagrees is just a threat to them that they can't take psychologically um and this this ties into another really problematic concept maybe it's a bit deep water here but this notion of safety is just is expanded beyond all bounds there's there's a truth to it the truth to it stems from the fact that these people can't distinguish between their physical safety and their worldview. If their worldview is challenged, they experience it the same way that you or I would experience, you know, the risk of getting in a car accident. Because their, their whole identity is invested in this. They right. don't have anything else. There's this huge void. You know, you don't see any humility. You don't see any um, 
common humanity because they haven't had all of that good stuff that makes any of that possible. Mm. And something else is going to come and fill that void, right? I mean, there's, there's a connection in history between the suppression of religion and the right. promotion of destructive ideologies. One of the things you also, among the seven uh, absolute rights, the right not to be subject to arbitrary detention, which we saw, and the right to be tried by an impartial judge who is a member of an independent judiciary. I raised that one as well, and and I know I don't know how to really uh, address it because the reality is is that all of our members of the judiciary are politically appointed. And it is not surprising that we would have members of the judiciary who have run for the governing party in, yep. you know, in a political election and that kind of thing. But I was fascinated by the, the arguments that was reported in the press by the justice who was dealing with Tamara Leach like and and again, I don't want to bring the um, uh, the administration of justice into disrepute, but it just seemed rather. How would I put it? Uh, it, it was. I'll use a uh, euphemism. It was curious that we have such a. Um, resolute opposition to allowing this young lady uh, to to leave because she the fear was that she was going to reoffend, um, and and her charge is that of criminal mischief. She also has said to the accused Excuse. that she was um, possibly going to be facing a large sentence of imprisonment, and I thought, wow, like. Uh, I've never heard of that on a bail hearing. Now, I haven't done too much in the way of bail hearings myself in my practice, but that seemed to be a rather, rather sharp. Well, here's the problem. I think that when we heard things like that in the past, we had a situation like this one. We would have recourse to this way of thinking. We would say, well, that person might have been, you know, affiliated with the government. Maybe they were even in government for a long period of time and associated with a political party. But I know they took an oath as a judge and that I know that within our legal system, this is sacred. Mm -hmm. When somebody says this is the Constitution and this is the laws, they say, OK, now it's time to set aside all of these partisan political matters. And it was it was easy to believe that based on the kind of interaction that we had with the kind of people in our profession. Right. Because we had all been to law school where our professors told us that this was this sacred duty. And that if you ever thought about suggesting otherwise or behaving otherwise, you deserved everything you got, that they were gonna enforce this standard on us, that we would take this all very seriously. Well, the problem is when the law schools and the legal profession, probably in that order, adopt a way of thinking about law that is the cynical rejection of all those premises. Legal realism goes back quite a ways. You go back to the 30s, right? Mm -hmm. One of its you know, key um, leading lights said, the decision of a judge has more to do with what he had for breakfast that morning than what's in any of the law books, right? Mm -hmm. This abject cynicism. Yeah. And this carries through and kind of just, it's like black mold in the institutions to the point where you kick down the door and the structure is just rotten. Because 
you don't have any faith that anyone believes that law is anything other than a disguise for the use of power. And at a point now, I'll just use this one example because it just it troubles me so much. When the law schools are head over heels for what's called critical race theory right. and the integration of critical race theory into the curriculum, well, that's one of its core tenets is that everything that merely appears to be neutral is a self-conscious attempt to disguise the use of unequal power. That everything that is neutral should be questioned. And you're sophisticated if you can see how what is apparently the most neutral rule is actually nothing other than a device for the extension of brutal and unjust inequities. Mm. That's what we're teaching people. This is what the, the schools are falling over themselves to recruit into their institutions. Now, okay, let's say this happens. Everyone takes this at face value. And there's some basis to say, well, I think that judge you know, might have a connection somehow to a particular point of view or, or whatever the case may be, that we were now being conditioned to run with it. And now it's a matter of, will we permit the person to make that allegation or are they on the wrong side of the issue such that we can use power to shut them down, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if, if we want to, to have that kind of system in place where we give judges the benefit of the doubt, we need to think about a very conscious rearticulation of the, the fundamentals of our legal order. The key problem, and I'm quoting, the key problem is that judges and lawyers know less of the historical context of our constitutional history with each passing generation. The sense of constitutional history that makes these insights comprehensible and keeps our most fundamental rights visible is now at risk of being lost as new generations of jurists have little to no formal grounding in this history. That becomes a real problem when we have a when we have a system that does not understand the history and why this particular utopian prime minister who gets up and says that the parliament, if it votes against our invocation of the Emergencies Act, is actually violating democracy. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, how? And, and then for a court, uh, to uh, ultimately, we'll see how this plays out as these cases come on. But if the court ultimately decides that, yes, this is a um, proper use of the Emergencies Act, it strikes me there is an absolute failure to understand what the history that you have written about, these seven absolute rights, they just have, they would have absolutely no comprehension of what an emergency is. And, and that also, I would say, makes a very scary future without the uprising. Like, in other words, the uprising of the uh, plebeians, the, the, uh, 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 the proletariat has got to really come to a place to say, hey, guys. This is unacceptable. Well, Dorothy Parker said the failure of communism is that the have-nots have spoken. And what they've said is they're principally interested in becoming haves. Mm. Um, 
So (laughs) (laughs) we like this. We like the idea that we can pursue, you know, um, life, liberty and happiness. Um, It's a very positive sign that that's when they rise up. That's what they say. They don't say um, they'd like uh, access to 20 different um, forms of gender on their birth certificates. Right. Um, (laughs) As we imagine that they're clamoring for. Right. Right. Um, Exactly. We we intellectuals. Um, This is okay. With respect to the court challenge, this is what I find so troubling. The standard by which we're going to judge this for the most part, because this is how administrative law has worked, is reasonableness. Mm -hmm. Now, the government may not be entirely correct. But we defer to them by saying, well, is there any reasonable basis for them to think the way they do? Well, there's only two problems now. One is there's no basis for the deference when they obviously have no expertise. The notion is they're the people that you know, make these um, decisions that we can't even fathom. Well, no, we can fathom them quite well. The problem is they're completely detached from the historical tradition that makes all this sensible. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, deference to expertise is predicated upon lawfulness, good faith. Mm-hmm. And we also don't have any basis to think that they operate in good faith anymore. So if a court does this and says, well, we're going to give you this benefit of the doubt because of your expertise and your purported good faith, what happens when it's very hard to believe in any of that? I mean, we're talking about collapse at the most fundamental level imaginable. Right. It's not just a kind of a failure of technique. It's a failure of the, the of, of everything that forms the good faith basis for what we do. But, you know, I, I'm just going to try to be a little bit more optimistic here. Yep. Um, we see it for what it is. There have always been, see, uh, what people forget is that all through the 20th century, the intellectual class was enamored with communism. Communism was very popular. Don't let people whitewash the past, right? You go back and you see that it was much easier to make your way as an intellectual, even in a law school, if you were to say this, well, the Marxists are you know, wrong on a few points, but their heart's in the right place. Yeah. And as to conservatives, they're just hidebound reactionaries who have no place in civilized society. They've been singing out of that hymn book for decades. Right. And Eleanor Roosevelt put it this way. She said, a communist is just a liberal in a hurry. Wow. You know? yeah. And um, you know, this is, this is a, an important person of the history of progressivism, that right. this this conceit on the part of the intellectual class has always been there. And I think ultimately as a society, the way out may just to be say, we're going to say that the credibility that comes from being a member of this intelligentsia has now been completely debased, that we're going to look and we're not going to say whether or not somebody has a bachelor's degree or that you know they've uh, read the right books so or they've covered the right podcasts. Uh, you know, they listen to the, the Daily on the New York Times faithfully, that we actually pay closer attention to the character of people mm. and what they can actually do and how we feel about their morality. And that this heuristic is not bigotry. It is the best means of evaluating whether or not someone can be trusted with the level of deference that we're going to give them. That right. they, when, we, when you give that property to someone, the faithful servant, you have this sense of that they're going to make good use of it. And there's no substitute for that. We're going to have to revert back from prudentialism back to judgment. Mm. That's the most fundamental thing we need to do. Right. And if the universities have to die for that to be something that, that, that happens in our society, right now I'm afraid it's no big loss. 
No big <laughs> loss. We could, we, could just, we could sacrifice the universities. If we had the community colleges, we'll be fine. Yeah. And um, we stop overproducing this class of people that just wants to desperately hold power because they've been told that having gone to a place where they heard the right views reiterated constantly, that they deserve to tell everyone else how they should live their lives. This just yeah. has to be where we draw the line. I have been very concerned with the universities and with, you know, particularly the law schools, because that's obviously an area of <laughs> where I've spent a lot of my time. And, and it strikes me that uh, we are now at a place where uh, the working class has risen and said, look, guys, we do not appreciate being told uh, what to do. We understood we had our own uh rights to our body, our own rights to our thoughts, freedom of expression, and all the rest. And who are you to tell us otherwise? And and that challenge is something that we're watching uh, being played out right now in real time. It Thank won't be long until someone says, I don't accept I've been to university as a good answer to any of that. And yeah. I think that a lot of things start to change as soon as someone says that. This with respect to law schools. I've just mentioned this. I'm a yeah. mentor of the law society. Until 1950, we were the only law school. It was the legal profession that to determine the content and the sufficiency of legal education. Right. And we could easily, if we reverted back to the situation in 1949, it wouldn't be the end of the world, would it? No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, we would learn a lot more about constitutional history and the reason why we have the laws that we do, which then helps us explain the kinds of uh, situations that we currently find ourselves in. And this is the, the heart. This is the, the key to everything. They don't want it, and and we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, listen. I just want to thank you so much, uh, Professor Alfred. It's uh, an absolute uh, pleasure to have had this conversation, and I'm sure that our listeners will greatly appreciate and learn uh, from such an articulate uh, presentation. And I want to thank you so very much. Really, the pleasure and the honor is mine, Barry, and uh, I, I just appreciate it, and I appreciate what you're doing, and I really hope I'll see you in person very soon. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. For those of you who are watching uh, Freedom Feature, thank you so very much, and I encourage you to go over to our website, firstfreedoms.ca, sign up for our newsletter so you're kept informed as soon as these um, uh, conversations are made available, you'll be the first to know. And uh, until next time... I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca